The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Tuesday, October 31st. Happy Halloween. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. In tonight's news, Minnesota's DNR approved a mining company's plan to do exploratory drilling near the Boundary Waters. Climate change may eventually make cold weather Halloween costumes unnecessary. WRT's Thursday reporter discusses her Isthmus opinion piece from earlier this month. And in the second half, UW student journalists discuss the Israel-Palestine conflict, and we get to better know a diminutive mammal. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers is suing Republicans, state lawmakers, over a move to block raises for University of Wisconsin employees, a move he says violates the state constitution's separation of powers. In a lawsuit filed with the Wisconsin Supreme Court today, Evers said legislators were acting, quote, unconstitutionally and unlawfully, unquote, by holding up pay raises for about 35,000 UW employees, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and other Republicans on a legislative committee say they will not approve the 6% raises until UW schools remove positions and programs related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. Voss has called those programs, quote, indoctrination. The legislature has okayed pay increases for other state employees. The governor's lawsuit also takes issue with lawmakers' actions regarding conservation projects and administrative rules for building projects. It's unclear whether the liberal majority on the state Supreme Court will take the case or send it to a lower court. Meanwhile, at the Wisconsin State Capitol today, Governor Evers said he has some concerns about pending legislation to address PFAS contamination in Wisconsin waters. In an interview with Wisconsin Eye, the governor said some provisions in the plan were, quote, questionable. But he stopped short of saying whether or not he planned to veto it, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Evers said he's concerned the plans put too many limits on the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources' power to enforce cleanup of these so-called forever chemicals. But he supports other parts of the plan, like giving grants to communities affected by PFAS. PFAS is a group of chemicals used in many consumer products and firefighting foam. They have been linked to certain types of cancer, birth defects, and other health problems. The Dane County Board has started its work on the 2024 county budget. Members of the board's finance committee met yesterday to take their first crack at amending the $937 million budget proposal from County Executive Joe Parisi. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, some of the big-ticket amendments from school board members included $10 million for the county's affordable housing fund and $8 million for a new farm worker housing fund. They also added more money to pay mental health crisis response workers and laid out requirements for a body camera pilot program at the Dane County Sheriff's Department. The full county board will vote on the budget in early November. The planning process is starting for Madison's second major bus rapid transit line, a north-south line. Construction is already underway on the east-west line running down East Washington Avenue, past the Capitol and UW campus, and out to the west side. Now, the Capital Times reports city officials are solidifying plans for a line running from the north side through downtown and south side neighborhoods and eventually to Fitchburg. Both BRT lines will include dedicated bus lanes, raised platforms, and more frequent buses. Construction on the north-south line is expected to start in 2026. 
Madison Metro Transit is hosting informational meetings for community members on this north-south line in November. Dates and locations are available on Metro's website. The Madison School Board doesn't appear interested in reconsidering upcoming changes to school start and dismissal times, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Last week, the Madison Metropolitan School District announced some schools would begin staggering first and last bells starting November 6 to help cope with a shortage of school bus drivers. Without enough drivers to cover all routes, some buses may have been getting students to school up to an hour late. The move faced some pushback from parents, and one school board member attempted to add a discussion about reversing the change to the board's agenda. But as of yesterday, no action had been taken to consider it. An outspoken brewery owner in Minocqua is vowing to fight a $750,000 judgment against him. Last week, a jury ruled Minocqua Brewing Company owner Kirk Bangstad defamed the owner of the Lakeland Times, a newspaper in the Minocqua Woodruff area, reports the Capital Times. That owner filed a defamation lawsuit, and a jury has now found in the plaintiff's favor, leaving the three-quarters of a million dollar judgment. In an online post this weekend, Bankstad vowed to appeal the ruling, saying such a large penalty was political retribution for being an outspoken liberal activist in a conservative part of the state. Bankstad has clashed with legal authorities in this part of Wisconsin before, including allegations that officials have targeted his business over his political beliefs. Creepy and crawly, but not Halloween-related, Madison Metro Transit confirmed social media speculation this week that bedbugs have been found on its buses. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, a spokesperson for Metro Transit said that drivers found the biting bugs on two buses undergoing maintenance in recent months. A bug was also suspected in an employee area at Metro's east side building. But in each case, the spokesperson said abatement measures were taken quickly and the operator believes the scope of the issues are very limited. And now on to today's top stories. Yesterday, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources approved a mining company's exploratory drilling plan. The proposed site is just upriver from the Boundary Waters area near Canada. With that approval, operations can begin as soon as the company has obtained the necessary permits. However, activists are opposed to the Minnesota DNR's decision and say environmental impacts could be severe. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. Yesterday, Minnesota's Department of Natural Resources approved a mining subsidiary's proposal for exploratory drilling in northeastern Minnesota. The proposal, submitted by Franconia Minerals, LLC, a subsidiary of Twin Metals Minnesota, LLC, and owned by Chilean mining company Antofagasta, PLC, asks for approval to conduct exploratory drilling south of Birch Lake. The lake, which is home to two federal campgrounds, a YMCA camp, and other nature refuges, is within the watershed of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. With the DNR's go-ahead for exploratory drilling, the mining company can commence drilling six exploratory holes for potential future mining of metallic minerals, particularly copper. Environmental groups are pushing back on the stamp of approval. Ingrid Lyons is the Executive Director of Northeastern Minnesotans for Wilderness, or NMW, a coalition working to protect the Boundary Waters from commercial pressures. This exploratory drilling plan consists of six drill pads, and it is essentially along the shores of Birch Lake. A few of the sites are just inland off the shores of Birch Lake along a creek that flows into Birch Lake. NMW leads a decade-old campaign called Save the Boundary Waters, 
which was formed in 2013 to protect the area from sulfide ore copper mining. The campaign has been pushing back on the exploratory plan since it was submitted last month. Lyons says the impacts on northeastern Minnesota's environment would be severe. It's quite a disruptive noise, and so the noise pollution is something of major concern, as well as, you know, there are other concerns with things like air and light and water pollution. That's just what happens when you're developing, you know, roads to access these drilling sites and you're drilling into the ground for these bore pads. And because of previous drilling and previous experience with that drilling, we know that noise is a huge, huge issue when it comes to exploratory drilling. NMW has a number of supporters in the area, folks who are worried about the consequences of renewed mining efforts. They have always had concerns about what will the impact of developed sulfide or copper mining be on my property, on my business. You know, for example, we have a third generation resort, River Point Resort and Outfitting Company. They've been at the same place for three generations. And they really, really bore a lot of the brunt of the noise pollution that happened from past exploratory drilling. Lyons is referencing a number of exploratory drilling operations that went on through 2006. In addition to the noise concerns, Birch Lake has long been on a list of impaired waters, with studies showing high levels of mercury in fish tissue. In 2020, NMW sued Minnesota's DNR, alleging that the state's rules on hard rock mining do not adequately protect the boundary waters. The DNR released a finding of fact report in May, though that lawsuit is still ongoing. Lyons says the DNR's report found, So we actually agree with you. We do also believe that Minnesota's rules are not sufficient to protect the boundary waters, but only as they pertain to noise and light pollution. We do think our rules are just fine when it comes to water and air pollution. NMW is contesting that ruling, disagreeing with the assessment that the environment is sufficiently protected under the law. Twin Metals, the mining company, is also suing Minnesota's DNR, but for the opposite reasons. The mining company says it disagrees with the assessment that drilling has harmful noise and light impacts. Both cases are projected to come before a judge sometime this winter. By their own admission, the DNR has said that the state rules are not sufficient to protect the boundary waters from noise and light pollution, but here they are greenlighting an exploratory drilling plan that would have the very same noise and light pollution that is in question in the same location. Lyons speculates that the DNR may have approved the exploratory drilling plan because they felt jurisdictional issues forced their hand. While environmental laws on a federal level do protect some areas near the boundary waters from mining activities, Twin Metals is a lessee on state lands. Lyons says the DNR likely determined that the federal laws are not enforceable on state and private lands. And she says that confusion needs to end. It's not enough for just the federal government or just the state government to protect the boundary waters. The watershed is a patchwork of federal, state, and private lands, all of which need to be protected if we really want to have a full picture of protection and have the Boundary Waters area truly be protected. Lyons says that NMW will continue their fight to protect the Boundary Waters. One of the main principles of our campaign, one of the main pillars of what we do is based on real and valid and in-depth science, really looking at the legal precedent, really just taking a look at who are the experts in this field and what can they tell us about the impact of this type of mining on this type of ecosystem. 
And so we very much look forward to continuing to litigate that. We really believe that this is the wrong place for sulfide ore copper mining, and we'll be able to demonstrate that. She also says that Wisconsinites are welcome to join their cause. If they want to get more involved, SaveTheBoundaryWaters.org is a great initial resource. We have a really comprehensive blog where they can learn more and sign up for updates. And we are just grateful for all the Boundary Waters advocates across the country and hope that folks will take action and and tell their federal and state representatives that they want to see this place protected for generations to come. Twin Metals declined a WORT request for an interview today. In an emailed statement, the mining company writes that they're pleased with the DNR's ruling and look forward to, quote, beginning exploration activity in a safe and environmentally responsible manner over the coming months, unquote. While the DNR's approval is effective immediately, Twin Metals will still have to obtain permits before breaking ground. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier this month, WRT's Thursday reporter Sarah Gabler wrote an op-ed for Isthmus newspaper titled Smoke on the Rocks, Waiting Tables Outside During an Air Quality Emergency. Gabler says that her experience this summer points to a much larger issue, namely that privileged Madisonians don't always consider the well-being of restaurant servers. WRT news producer Faye Parks spoke to Sarah on the topic. Another takeaway is is very simple, and that's there's always somebody who makes your comforts possible. And sometimes that person is invisible to you. Sometimes they aren't. All statements made during this interview are opinion. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. Thanks for inviting me, Faye. At long last, <laughs> we get to discuss your opinion piece published in Isthmus newspaper. So that was October 8th, I believe, that That's... it was published. For those who haven't read it, what was your experience waiting on outside tables this summer? During the smoke emergencies, I'm sure you'll remember them. In <laughs> June and early July, the air quality was horrendous. Uh, at one point, shooting to almost hazardous levels. And the restaurant where I work kept its very popular patio open through it all. And I found that frustrating for a couple of reasons. One, because I had to stand out there in the smoke and serve people. And, you know, I experienced some mild discomfort from that itchy eyes, a sore throat. It bothered me that folks who came to eat at this restaurant could choose to eat outside and take on the risks of the exposure to the smoke. And that wasn't a choice that I had. So do you have the figures or just like a ballpark idea of how bad the air quality was this summer? And what kind of recommendations did the state's Department of Natural Resources release? So for a couple of days, it was nearly hazardous. The air quality index, I think one day the highest it reached in Madison was 149, which is like two points away from being hazardous. But other days it was unhealthy, very unhealthy. Those are the terms Um, of the air quality index. And in response, the Department of Natural Resources issued some recommendations to people that when the air quality was unhealthy or very unhealthy, that folks should stay inside and wear an N95 mask if they did go outside. So some simple precautions to limit exposure. And that was especially important for folks with, you know, respiratory health concerns, the elderly, the very young, 
people with other kind of compromised health concerns. But when the air quality is very unhealthy, everybody should be taking some simple precautions. And so you mentioned that your management essentially said business as usual. Mm -hmm. Why was that? Was it just because there was still demand from customers to do so? Yeah, it seemed very simple from a business perspective. They have a profit motive. And as long as they were paying customers who were showing up, requesting to sit outside, they weren't going to close the patio. And some shifts that I work, the patio was full, full of people. And there were seats available inside. And on some of those days where the air quality was at its worst, the heat was also unbearable. So 90 degrees outside or nearly 90 degrees outside with hazy air. I mean, you could see how smoky the air was. You could feel it. Given the conditions, it seems like it wouldn't have cost the customers anything to sit inside in a nice, air-conditioned, cool restaurant. So, I mean, if it's me, I'm sitting inside. (laughs) How many hours a shift would you say you spent breathing the low-quality air? On a four- to five-hour shift, which is like a typical dinner service, I would say a fair amount of that time is spent with customers, although, you know, say I spent half that time outside, that's still relatively minimal compared to folks in other industries and other workplaces where there isn't availability to be inside at all. And so I started looking up what kinds of protections there were for folks who were, you know, farm workers, baggage handlers at airports, um, sanitation workers. And I found that, you know, what I thought was unfair exposure on my behalf, when you think about it in larger terms, there just aren't protections for outdoor workers. Generally speaking, OSHA does not have guidelines on air quality for outdoor workers. I found that the state of California has created some guidelines because they experience seasonal wildfires you know, just because of the reality of seasonal wildfires there, they've adapted some of their labor protections. So what at first was an issue that I felt very personally like spiraled as I started doing some research and and looking into one, just kind of how how privileged my, my own experience was. And I didn't even think of it like that in terms of how outdoor workers in other industries were experiencing the air quality. So you pointed out in your piece that the customers who chose to sit outside during those weeks were acting out of privilege. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. I work in a very privileged area, very wealthy and very white area of Madison. And you can look at demographic information and find that the median household income in this area is over $200,000 a year. Based on race, the population in this area is almost 90% white. And I think for these groups, quality health insurance can be taken for granted. And I also linked in my piece to a statement made by Freedom Inc. about how the poor air quality this summer raised a health equity issue. And and they write um, that the worsening air quality disproportionately affects marginalized communities, including black people, people of color, refugees, immigrants and the poor these communities are more likely to live near factories and dump sites and have access or have less access to resources like filtered air ventilation, air purifiers, masks, and health insurance that would protect them from poor air quality. So whether my customers saw or perceived what they were doing as a form of privilege or not, I think you can't help but kind of make some connections here between who was showing up and and what risks they were willing to take on by showing up and eating outside. 
did any of those customers who sat outside comment on the weather? Did they ask about your well-being at all? No. And I I wore a mask and it's kind of hard to say like how they were interpreting that. Okay, so it was just kind of for them as well, just business as usual. Like it didn't really register for them as a huge issue. Not enough for them to bring it up with me, at least. So you've already mentioned the OSHA regulations in California specifically. Is that one of the solutions that you would propose for Wisconsin moving forward, uh, knowing that air quality will continue to be an issue in the coming decades? Yeah, there were some guidelines that exist in California, include providing PPE to outdoor workers, switching schedules to limit exposure during times of the day when it might be particularly bad, or moving work locations outdoors to indoors. And those are very general. It's hard to be concrete. That might change dramatically based on the kind of work being done. But sure, some of those things could be implemented here. Thanks for agreeing to speak with me, Sarah. Thanks, Faye. That was our Thursday reporter, Sarah Gabler, sharing some insight on her opinion piece published in ISFIS newspaper on October 8th. Look up, quote, smoke on the rocks, waiting tables outside during an air quality emergency, unquote, to give it a read. Late October means preparing for trick-or-treaters and heading to pumpkin patches. But over time, changing weather patterns means you might not have to bundle up as much for such activities. Climate change experts say cities in Wisconsin aren't immune to fall warming trends. Mike Moen of Wisconsin News Connection has the story. As Halloween approaches, cooler temperatures will spread over Wisconsin. But weather experts say climate change is making October nights in the Midwest feel warmer more often than not. A new analysis from the nonprofit Climate Central says fall evening temperatures in the U.S. have warmed by nearly two degrees on average since 1970. And it's even higher in cities like Madison and Milwaukee, which has seen increases of nearly four degrees when looking at minimum temps. Climate Central meteorologist Lauren Casey says it doesn't just affect traditional fall activities. Allergy season has been lengthened by about a month in many locations across the Midwest. She says that makes it more burdensome for people with more serious respiratory issues like asthma. And the analysis points out that mosquito season is being extended too. Casey says to help mitigate these trends, Midwest residents should do what they can to avoid energy sources that come from fossil fuels. And Casey says adapting to these changes is another important step so that folks aren't caught off guard when the calendar flips to October. So you can best prepare if you do have asthma, you know, if you are potentially susceptible to mosquito-borne illnesses, all of these things which can impact our everyday lives. For prolonged allergy seasons, health experts say vulnerable individuals should put some time and research into establishing a medication regimen that works for them. Meanwhile, Casey says the warmer weather results in heavier rain events, which attract more mosquitoes. She suggests that you be more mindful of areas of standing water as the fall drags on. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. On this week's edition of Cardinal Call, feature contributor Gavin Escott sits down with the Daily Cardinal senior staff writer Rachel Hale to discuss how UW-Madison is handling the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine.
Hello, and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal Student Newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott. And I'm your co-host, Hewan Lim. Ever since Hamas launched an attack on Israel on October 7th, college campuses have been rocked by demonstrations, with the events of the Middle East pushing many students and community members to take a side. At UW-Madison, various groups on campus have organized events, including UW-Hillel, the Center of Jewish Life on Campus, and the Wisconsin Union Directorate. Those events included Middle East experts Gaith Alamari and David Mikowski, hosted by UW-Hillel, and UW-Madison professor and Palestinian activist Samar al hosted by the Wisconsin Union Directorate. Today, we're joined by our senior staff writer, Rachel Hale, to discuss these lectures and their takeaways. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Last week, you attended two separate events a lecture on the history of Israel and Gaza from a UW-Madison professor supporting Palestine, and a conversation between two guest lecturers from a Middle East think tank with a pro-Israel stance. Can you give us a picture of what these events were? Sure. I think that it was great that these events were here on campus, and I was impressed to see how many students turned out to both of these. The conversation with Samir Alatut spoke to a lot of his personal experiences as someone who grew up in the West Bank and also as an academic who studied the history of Israel and Gaza, and he provided a lot on how Palestinians on campus are feeling and spoke to some historical context, whereas the conversation at Hillel was moderated and structured in a way that they spoke a lot about foreign policy aspects as well as how Jewish students on campus are feeling. What were some of the main takeaways from each event? I think something that stuck with me from the Hillel conversation is that this round of conflict is really something different than what we've seen even over the last 13 years. The way that Israel is thinking about this is similar to how the U.S. thought of their 9-11. So trying to think from those shoes is kind of how David and Gaith spoke about it when they started the conversation. And they talked about how here this time the IDF's goal is really to topple Hamas as opposed to restoring deterrence in the region. And there's obviously some implications that come with with that, but they spoke about some of those foreign policy aspects and also the interests of other countries in the Middle East, including Iran and Lebanon. I think that the conversation with Samer spoke a lot to how a lot of Palestinians on campus are feeling, and him as a professor with a historical background in this and expertise, but also as someone who grew up in the West Bank, he spoke to some of his personal experiences and spoke to how, for a lot of Palestinians, they're really viewing this conflict as an extension of 1948. The way that he phrased it is that it's kind of like one long war that's never ended. Um, And in 1948, after the Arab-Israeli War, what a lot of Israelis would call the War of Independence, and in the wake of the refugees that were displaced, Palestinians often refer to that displacement as the Nakba, when over half of the existing Palestinian population was displaced throughout the Middle East. And the way that Samer spoke about it, he spoke to that Palestinian perspective of how for a lot of people that feeling has just never ended and he kind of said that everything else in between has been an extension of that history since 1948. What Samer was saying about the history of Gaza and Israel, do you think that's something that most people know when they are talking about this conflict? No, I don't. I think that we're seeing a lot of people feel the need to speak up on social media or to talk about this with their friends, but this being such a complex geopolitical conflict, we're seeing that a lot of times people don't have the historical knowledge of this beyond maybe one day of learning in their seventh grade history class. Or a social media post they've seen from their friend. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're definitely seeing on social media right now that it's, it's a hard time for students to know, do you post? 
post? Do you not post? We've seen students say that you're, you're silenced, that we hear that and that it's important to speak out. We've also seen people say it's an important time to elevate Palestinian or Israeli voices and not to speak on it if you don't have a direct connection. So I think for a lot of students, this is a time of isolation. Um, even for students who aren't directly impacted by this, it's hard for people to know the right way to move forward. A lot of the demonstrators I've talked to in the past week, a lot of the pro-Palestinian demonstrators, they've said that the world has only started paying attention recently because Israel's been the one that's attacked. And they've said that this has been happening every day, that this is a humanitarian crisis that's existed long before what's happening now. And they've been a little upset with how the media has portrayed this. And the event at UW-Hillel, you had Mikofsky and Alamari commenting on how much the media shapes the perception of this event. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I think one thing that's really important is for students to understand how the media that we take in is going to influence our perception of this, especially if we're only getting our sources from social media. So one thing that the experts at the Hillel conversation talked about was just the importance of pulling up multiple media sites at the same time. I remember one of the lecturers even said he might have five TV screens running at once. So we're seeing that a lot of Palestinian activists and Israeli activists feel that the media has only condemned the loss of innocent human life when it's benefited one stance. And so I think that a a lot of experts on the subject have pushed the importance of going beyond social media for your news fact-checking what you're looking at, and really going to a variety of sources from Arabic news sources, if you speak Arabic, or if not, going to a source that might lean that way, or whether someone speaks Hebrew or not, going to a source that would speak more from the ground in Israel. Another thing that's really important to consider when we think about media is blockouts that we've seen of media coverage in Gaza. Some of the journalists who are doing reporting in these areas are fighting for their lives as they're reporting, and that, of course, is going to impact coverage. We've also seen, I think, some people who would otherwise speak on this topic are afraid to give interviews even to student media just out of fear of retribution or, you know, academic condemnation. And so I think that we have to remember that some of the perspectives that we're seeing, in addition to expert perspectives, might be people who feel really extremely about one side. And that's why it's all the more important to be reading from a variety of perspectives. You mentioned that people are worried about retribution for speaking their views. We've seen that across the country, where people with pro-Palestinian viewpoints have lost their jobs or faced harassment. And this works the other way, too, with people with pro-Israeli stances facing consequences. But across academia in particular, the consensus has largely stood behind Israel. Did Alatut, a UW-Madison professor, expressed concerns about speaking on this issue in support of Palestine? Yeah, Alatu did speak to that, and he talked about how it's important to speak out about what's happening right now. And he also thanked the audience for being there and coming out to hear his perspective during such a divisive time. And I think that we're definitely seeing that fear of retribution, whether that's in people's personal lives, just fear of being ousted from social groups or threats on social media or on a larger scale. We're definitely seeing efforts at doxing and we're seeing academic retribution in terms of people being fired from their job, depending on the statements that they make make. And we're seeing companies flounder with knowing what to say and if they should say anything at all. And so I think that it definitely is a divisive time in that sense and that some of the perspectives we're hearing are probably the more extreme ones because people who sit somewhere in the middle of this and are confused are choosing to remain silent out of their own confusion. This is obviously a heated issue on campus. And something that really stood out to me in your article were Makovsky and Alamari urging students to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Having covered campus reactions to the events in Israel, have these conversations 
conversation's been civil and nuanced? Yeah, I think that's something really important to talk about. Unfortunately, I think that a lot of the conversations we're seeing happen at these demonstrations lack the nuance just because of how heated things can feel for students in the moment. But I do believe based on the interviews I've had with students that these conversations are happening in, you know, at kitchen tables and around campus and, you know, in the hallways outside of classrooms. And I'd like to believe that students are having those conversations. But I think that we're not seeing that reflected in the coverage because, like I said, a lot of times students who feel comfortable speaking on the record are probably those that have more extreme views. And I think something that's really important for us to remember and that, you know, both of these lectures have talked about is how deeply impacted people feel on a personal level by this. We have Jewish, Muslim, Palestinian and Israeli students on campus who have family that have been directly impacted by this, people who have been killed in the Gaza Strip, people who know hostages that have been taken. And I think it's important to remember that for a lot of students, this is still a time of grieving. One student who I spoke to last week, I remember her telling me she had family that was directly impacted. She said it feels like the rest of the world is still moving, but for her, it's frozen. And I think that's how it feels for a lot of Palestinian and Israeli students on campus and also those who don't have a direct connection there, but feel very impacted by this. In your conversations with these students, what were some of the main concerns they expressed to you? I'm seeing a lot of students really concerned about a rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, and that mirrors broader concerns around the whole country. We saw the devastating loss of a six-year-old Palestinian American who was stabbed 26 times outside of Chicago, and we know that that was a hate crime and that it was motivated by the landlord having listened to far-right conservative news coverage of this. And we also saw in Detroit a synagogue president who was found fatally stabbed outside her home. And I think students seeing this but also encountering anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on their campuses has made this a really scary time to identify with either of these groups. And I think that while a lot of students on campus, the ones that I've talked to, do feel safe here, they definitely are concerned about what they're saying on social media or in their conversations and how that could impact them and their safety. We talked about the effect that social media can have in amplifying, especially with this being such a divisive conflict, misinformation that spreads from this. Have you seen a lot of misinformation that's come out of this? Yeah, absolutely. One prominent example that comes to mind is one of the demonstrations that was planned by Palestinian activists. This would have been, I think this may have been about two weeks ago now, spread viral on Twitter. There was a video of protesters saying glory to the martyrs. But the person who initially posted it on X, formerly known as Twitter, put in the caption that they were saying glory to the murders. And it was hard to disertain what the the chant leader was saying in that video. And unfortunately, that video with, with the call being glory to the murders was inaccurately reposted by a variety of news sources, including Fox News and the New York Post. And that video was seen over two million times on Twitter and just goes to show... It went completely viral. Yes, right. And just goes to show how quickly things can spiral out of control. I saw journalists in the Middle East that I follow reposting that. And a video of the event that was longer, I think it must have been like a 40-second clip, that showed the the leader initially saying what the chant was, showed that it was glory to the martyrs, not glory to the murders. And even though we did see some people in their response say that that maybe is a similar intended meaning in the sense that we don't know if martyrs refers to Hamas terrorists or, you know, innocent civilians. But either way, it's really important to be careful with the language that we're using. And we've also seen issues with artificial intelligence and people retweeting videos that, you know, in the caption, it might say it's from this round of fighting and it actually is from 10 years ago. So we're definitely seeing that rise of misinformation and it goes to show how important it is to get our news off of social media. When people see viral videos such as that, it's easy to fall back on grouping Palestinians or Jews into monolithic categories that have the same views. And misinformation has unfortunately reinforced this. You talked to a lot of students who commented that they didn't share the views that people expected them to hold and felt isolated as a result. What were your impressions of these students? 
Yeah, I think that isolation is a really key word here. And I'm seeing a lot of students who feel just really abandoned by their friends or social or political or academic circles who people in those groups who have spoken out in a way that they didn't expect. I'm seeing a lot of Jewish or Israeli activists who feel really disheartened to see people, particularly people on the left, not condemn Hamas as a terrorist group when we know that Hamas is designated as a terrorist group by the United States as well as the European Union. And we know that the acts that happened on October 7th were in a lot of ways, as I said earlier, Israel really thinks of that as a 9-11. And it was the biggest massacre of Jews in a single day since the Holocaust. And I think it's been really hard for Jewish students to see people fail to condemn that happening. And I think we also see Palestinian students who are having a really hard time seeing people who don't want to look at the historical context of what's happened and who fail to acknowledge the disparity of deaths on the Palestinian side, because we know that at the end of the day, there have been at this point over 7000 Palestinians killed in the Gaza Strip as a result of the counteraction in Israel's effort to find Hamas militants. And I think it's hard for students to see people around them not be able to look at this conversation with nuance and to really only condemn the loss of innocent human life when it benefits their side. So I think it's absolutely a really isolating time for students. And I think students are leaning on each other by going to, you know, affinity groups. So whether that's for Jewish students going to events at Hillel or Chabad or for Palestinian students taking part in events with Students for Justice in Palestine. I think students are finding ways to come together with their community right now. Is there anything else you learned over the course of your reporting that stood out to you? I think just the importance of looking at what's happening with nuance and empathy. A lot of what we're seeing is students will say things behind a screen that they wouldn't say in person. And a view that I've had experts and students alike tell me is that they they really feel lonely right now. And I think it's a hard time to be a student on a college campus because we know that a lot of activism efforts are the most divisive on college campuses and that we're kind of looking at what's happening around the country with a microscope here. So I think it's really important for us to remember to use empathy and to remember that these are real students and lives impacted on our campus and to remember that in the rhetoric that we use. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. In other campus news, Senator Ron Johnson made a surprise appearance during a UW-Madison public affairs class. Johnson was joined by Chancellor Jennifer Mnookin, with the two discussing civil discourse with students. Considered a far-right lawmaker with a history of inflammatory statements, Johnson was pressed on his views on vaccines, climate change, and misinformation in competitive exchanges with students. And in other news, UW-Madison broke graduation rate records for the 2022-2023 school year. According to the university, UW-Madison saw its highest-ever four-year and six-year graduation rates, the largest bachelor and master degree rates, and the shortest-ever time-to-degree period. UW-Madison graduation rates continued to lead other UW system schools. And in other news, the number two-ranked Wisconsin women's volleyball team swept Michigan State Friday. The Badgers were fresh off their first loss of the season last week, but rallied to beat the Spartans after a slow start. The team will play number 19-ranked Purdue on Wednesday. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Common shrews are not your run-of-the-mill mammal. They're venomous, yes, venomous, and they can shrink their own brains. On this spooky edition of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explores the lives of these wonderfully weird rodents. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we get to talk about a spooky species, a really cool species over the week of Halloween here, which is the shrew. How much do you know about shrews? And have you ever seen a shrew in the wild? Because they are really amazing. And I'm going to call them spooky because I'm going to tell you about some really interesting facts about the shrew that you probably didn't know. But we do have one in rehabilitation right now. And yes, it is a species we work with at Dane County Humane Society. They are amazing, tiny little mammal critters. And I love them so much. They are probably one of my favorites. If you haven't seen one before, definitely look up some photos, but they are little round fuzzy rodents that basically kind of look like mice. They are not mice, however. They are very flat to the ground and kind of oval shaped with long noses. The noses are amazing because they move around and they kind of wiggle because shrews actually use echolocation to explore their habitats, similar to how bats use it. They have these tiny beady little eyes, they got whiskers and a short tail. We have short-tailed shrews here in Wisconsin. And they have this velvety soft fur. And by velvety, I mean it's like really thick, but really soft. And they're usually grayish brown coloration. But seriously, that's my favorite part about the shrews is just how dense and soft their fur is. But they're only going to be about 100 millimeters long and 15 to 30 grams in body weight. So they're not very big. And they really only live about one to two years in the wild. So it's not very long. But they are a very common insectivore species here in our state. And they are the most high metabolism mammal that I know of because of how much they're eating. They're eating basically constantly throughout their lifetimes. So the cool thing about shrews is just, you know, that they are providing an amazing environmental service by keeping insect populations under control, which is why we definitely consider them a species of conservation importance, even though they are very common. They are digging in the ground, so they've got their tunnels and their different rooms that they're doing things in, like sleeping or going to the bathroom or... Actually, they cache a lot of their food, which are insects, by using venom in their mouths. So yes, they are also venomous. Ooh, that's kind of creepy. It's not a venom that would cause mortality in humans or anything. So if you get bit by a shrew, you know, it's going to be painful, probably sting, and you may lose some feeling for a couple of days. But they actually use that venom and secrete it so that they can catch their insect prey and then store them for later because they are constantly moving, constantly running around, and they don't even hibernate in the winter. And I think that's probably one of the most amazing things about shrews is being able to survive a Wisconsin winter, which is really cold, and not hibernating. So they aren't migrating, they aren't moving very far, but there's this really seasonal environment here in our state where they are having to deal with harsh conditions as a very tiny mammal. And I think that's a lot different than some of our other mammal species, but they even have one of the most amazing strategies to help adapt for this that I've ever heard of, and it's called Donnell's Phenomenon. Shrews are like the poster child for this type of behavior, and it's not really well studied, and there's not a ton of animals that show it. 
But it has been proven that individual shrews can actually shrink their brain case, they shrink their skulls and their brains and even some of their internal organs to help combat a harsh winter. So if they didn't store up enough food, they're not sure if they're going to be able to have enough calories to be able to eat and survive, they shrink. And let's pause there for a moment. They can shrink? They shrink their entire brain cases. That's amazing. And then they regrow it in the spring. They can partially regrow. So anywhere between 9 to 13% of their brain case will go back up in that second summer, which again, how do they do it? It's incredible. We don't really know actually if it's genetically driven or if it's environmental condition related, but there's definitely more to be studied here. There was a research project that worked on this in 2014 and it was published in Current Biology magazine in 2017. So highly recommend reading it. It's a really, really cool to learn about, but they were able to catch individual shrews, about 12 of them, and take measurements and x-rays under anesthesia and then microchip the shrews so that they could catch the exact same individuals and remeasure them the next season. And so that's how they know that they could see these variations in the skeletal anatomy of shrews. And it's just, it's shocking in a lot of ways. Who knew? Are there, you know, implications to human health by studying how shrews are able to do this, considering that humans go through changes to, you know, their bones and bone structure and bone mass all throughout their lifetimes. But, you know, shrews only live for a few years. So how does it so rapidly change? It's pretty amazing, but also really kind of freaky to know that shrews can just adapt that quickly to something and how they've adapted to it, we still don't really exactly know. It's amazing, and I think it is worth appreciating. So little shrews, they are common here in Wisconsin, but the cool things about them to highlight for this Halloween week spookiness is that they can use echolocation, they have venom, and they also can shrink their body mass and their skulls and their brains. That's pretty weird and really cool. So something worth appreciating, and we are glad that we have this one rehabilitation that is doing very well after being found bit by a cat, unfortunately, probably one of their most common predators. But we're here for that as a rehabilitation facility to work with lots of different species. So if you ever find one in your house or you find one injured in your backyard, anything like that, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And that's the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. Otherwise, we appreciate you listening here on WORT about wildlife and wildlife rehab and all the fun species we get to work with here in Wisconsin. We appreciate all of your time and thanks for listening here today. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein-Wilson. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gavin Ascott, and Hewan Lim, and Wisconsin News Connections' Mike Mullen. Super Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you follow your favorite podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Up next is Spanish Language News with Anoistro Patio. Good night.